Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Ezra chapter 7. I mentioned in the first episode in this series that Ezra and Nehemiah are really meant to be read together. Together, they're telling one story in three parts, or actually in three waves. There are three main waves of returnees in this story. In the first wave, there was a group of people under the leadership of Zerubbabel and Jeshua, and their job was to rebuild the house of the Lord. They got off to a good start. And then they were stalled by local opposition and interference. But then just when the project seemed to be hopelessly doomed, some local Persian officials sent a letter to Darius attempting to clear some things up. And lo and behold, the original proclamation was discovered and their permission was reaffirmed and the commitment of the Persian government to the project was actually strengthened. So what the enemy meant for evil, God turned to the good. Praise the Lord. That was the story we just read in chapters 1 through 6. Now, in chapter 7, we jump forward nearly 60 years. Over the next four chapters, we will read the story of the second wave of return under the leadership of a man named Ezra. His job is to reestablish the law. The third part of the story is told in the book of Nehemiah. His focus will be on rebuilding the wall. So we pick up the narrative right in the middle of the story, really, here in Ezra chapter 7, verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra the son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Marioth son of Zerahiah, son of Uzi, son of Buki, son of Abishua, son of Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe, skilled in the law of Moses, that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given, and the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Now, let's just pause here. I mentioned that chapter 7 begins the second part of this three-part story. The narrator clues us into that by using the phrase, now after this. So, if you're a note-taker, you can put a little note beside that phrase, now after this, in your Bible, indicating that we have moved forward in the historical timeline nearly 60 years. The narrator tells us that this part of the story takes place in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Artaxerxes I was king of Persia from 465 BC to 424 BC. He was the king for both the Ezra and Nehemiah parts of this story. So that answers the when question and also the first part of the who question. Artaxerxes is one of the main characters in this part of the story, just like Cyrus and Darius were important characters in the first part of the story. Remember, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Proverbs 21, verse 1. So God often nudges the flow of history this way or that way, 
by turning the heart of the king. And we see that happening here. Verse 6 says that the king, King Artaxerxes, granted him, that would be Ezra, all that he asked for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Thus it would appear that before leading this expedition, Ezra held some sort of official position within the Persian government. He obviously had access and some kind of relationship with the king. The king was impressed with Ezra, and he was willing to hear his requests. Now, we need to stop and think about that. Later in the next part of the story, we're going to meet a man named Nehemiah. He, too, had an official position within the Persian government. He, too, had a relationship with King Artaxerxes. So obviously, at least some of the Jewish exiles were living and doing very well within the Persian Empire. And one can't help but wonder if this goes back in some sense to the influence of Mordecai. The story of Esther and Mordecai actually takes place between part one and part two of the story. So if you were to take a pair of scissors and snip out the individual pages of your Bible, which, by the way, I don't recommend that you do, but if you were to do that, you could spread Ezra 6 and Ezra 7, about two feet apart, and you could drop the entire book of Esther in between. That would give you a chronological sense of what was going on in the wider world at this time. In that story, the story of Esther and Mordecai, we learn about a deadly threat to the Jews living in Babylon. The king in that story is Xerxes, the son of Darius. Xerxes was the king who invaded Greece and defeated the Spartans at the Battle of Thermopylae. That's how we tend to know him in the Western world. But in the Bible, Xerxes is the king who listened to Esther and who saved the Jews from extermination in Babylon and who promoted Mordecai to one of the highest offices in all the empire. So we can't help but wonder if Mordecai didn't use that position to promote and protect other Jews and to place them in positions of influence throughout the empire. Could Mordecai have appointed Ezra to a position of influence near the end of his tenure. It's absolutely possible. In fact, I would argue that it is entirely probable. How else do we explain both Ezra and Nehemiah occupying these sorts of offices in a foreign regime? Well, however we got there, obviously by some move of God's providence, Ezra is a man of considerable character and gravitas. He is described in these verses, first of all, as a priest, and not just any priest. He was a member of the high priestly family, able to trace his lineage directly back to Aaron himself. In verse 6, we are told that he was also a scribe, skilled in the law of Moses. So Ezra was a scholar, a man of letters, and as we will discover later, an able administrator and a man of considerable character. Derek Kidner says here, his name stands very high in Jewish tradition, where he came to be regarded as a second Moses. And indeed, it was he, more than any other man, who stamped Israel with its lasting character as the people of a book, closed quote. So this Ezra, this formidable priest, scribe, and scholar, whispered in the ear of the king and secured a commission to lead a delegation back to Jerusalem to teach and reimpose the laws of Moses upon the post-exilic community. If the people are going to worship God, then they need to live in a way that accords with his word and character. That was the commission that Ezra suggested and that was subsequently given to him by King Artaxerxes. 
The story continues in verse 7. And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king, some of the people of Israel, and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers, and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem, for the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, and to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Now, the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king would be 458 B.C. That the journey began in the first month of the year and ended in the fifth month means, obviously, that the journey took approximately four months to complete. Darius had made a number of significant improvements to the road system in Persia, enabling this wave of returnees to make the trip in significantly less time than had the first wave. At the head of this second wave strode Ezra, who had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. And evidently, he carried on his person a letter of commission signed by no less an authority than King Artaxerxes himself. We read about that in verse 11. This is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, a man learned in matters of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes for Israel. Now, we'll just pause here to mention that verse 11 is written in Hebrew, while the letter itself, beginning in verse 12, is written in Aramaic which, as was mentioned in a previous episode, was the language used for administration and transcultural communication within the Persian Empire. The letter begins in verse 12. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven. Peace. And now, I make a decree that anyone of the people of Israel or their priests or Levites in my kingdom who freely offers to go to Jerusalem may go with you. For you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God, which is in your hand, and also to carry the silver and gold that the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, with all the silver and gold that you shall find in the whole province of Babylonia, and with the freewill offerings of the people and the priests vowed willingly for the house of their God that is in Jerusalem. Now, let's just pause here, as there are a few things we should notice in terms of the opening section of this letter. We should notice, first of all, that Artaxerxes addresses the letter to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven. We've talked already about Ezra's qualifications. He was a priest. He was a member of the high priestly family. He was also a scholar, and he almost certainly occupied some sort of official role within the government of Artaxerxes. Some scholars have suggested that we ought to understand Ezra as essentially the Secretary of State for Jewish Affairs. Certainly, the scope of his mandate seems to indicate that Ezra is far more than just a scholar being dispatched to up the quality of religious life in Jerusalem. He's a man of standing and ability, and he has been given some rather far-reaching authority. Specifically, he's authorized to lead a caravan, a second wave, if you will, of returnees from Babylon— to the region around Jerusalem. Any who wish to go are permitted to do so. 
This caravan has the full backing of the crown and the seven counselors. Scholars identify this as a mark of authenticity. In the Persian system of the time, the seven counselors represented the most trusted advisors to the king, what we might today call the, the president or the prime minister's cabinet. So this venture has the approval of the highest levels of government. Ezra is authorized by the king and his seven counselors to assess the religious and cultural life of the post-exilic community in the region and to make changes and to enact policies as required to ensure that the people there are living as they should. Now, again, the, the Persian policy towards subject peoples was very different than the policy of the Babylonians and the Assyrians before them. The Persians were more salad bowl than melting pot. They wanted people to live according to their own laws and culture within their ancestral lands and to pray to their local deities for the prosperity of the king and empire. And they wanted them to prosper and pay taxes. So there was a degree of self-government afforded to subject peoples. Obviously, that self-government had to align with the concerns and dictates of the greater empire, but within limits, the Persians wanted their subject peoples, Jewish, Egyptian, and otherwise, to regulate their own civil, cultural, and religious affairs, such that the Persian provincial officials could limit themselves to matters of imperial concern. So Ezra was to begin setting that up. He was to begin building back an explicitly Jewish cultural and civil life, organized, of course, around the Jewish law, the law of God, which Artaxerxes describes as being in your hand. That's in verse 14. Scholars, of course, wonder what version of the law is being referred to there. Of course, we can't say for sure, but we may presume that it refers most immediately to the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. Ezra is often understood as having done a great deal of work in the exile, likely on the payroll of the Persians and at their encouragement, to compile, edit, and assemble other religious documents as well. So it's quite probable that he brought a fair bit of what we now think of as the Old Testament back with him, all of which, to Artaxerxes anyway, could be referred to as simply the law of God that is in your hand. Ezra is also entrusted with a sizable donation from the king that was no doubt intended to subsidize a number of services and sacrifices that would be made on his behalf. The deal, of course, was that the Persian kings would invest heavily in local temples and religious systems, in return for which regular prayers and offerings would be made on their behalf. We have records of this sort of transaction taking place all over the Persian Empire, not just here with respect to Jerusalem. Ezra is further authorized to raise funds for this work from within Babylon before his departure. In verse 16, where it refers to all the silver and gold that you shall find in the whole province of Babylonia, uh, of course, we need to understand that doesn't mean that Ezra can just loot the storehouses of Babylon for whatever gold and silver he wants. Rather, what it means is that he can transport to Jerusalem whatever he is able to raise in the province of Babylon. Most of these donations, of course, would have come from Jewish people who made the decision to stay behind, but who nonetheless wanted to support the returning group. And then some of it may have also come from Babylonians, Persians, who followed the example of their king in wanting prayers and sacrifices made on their behalf. We jump back into the story at verse 17. With this money, then, you shall with all diligence buy bulls, rams, and lambs, 
with their grain offerings and their drink offerings, and you shall offer them on the altar of the house of your God that is in Jerusalem. Whatever seems good to you and your brothers to do with the rest of the silver and gold you may do according to the will of your God. The vessels that have been given you for the service of the house of your God you shall deliver before the God of Jerusalem. And whatever else is required for the house of your God, which it falls to you to provide, you may provide it out of the king's treasury. So the money contributed by the government is to be used first and foremost to ensure that the worship is funded. Again, prayers and sacrifices were to be made regularly on behalf of the king and the empire. But then also at Ezra's discretion, other necessary purchases and expenditures could be made. In addition, some further donation of religious articles is here recorded. We recall, of course, that Cyrus had released a variety of vessels into the possession of Sheshbazar. So we assume that the vessels mentioned here were either vessels that had been discovered after that in the Babylonian archives or simply generic religious vessels that were assumed to have value to the work in Jerusalem. In verse 20, Ezra is authorized to withdraw from the royal treasury for whatever other funds might be necessary to complete this enterprise. In verse 21, Artaxerxes begins to address the local treasurers in the trans-Euphrates region. We pick up the story there. You can hear the change of address. And I, Artaxerxes the king, make a decree to all the treasurers in the province beyond the river. Whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, requires of you, let it be done with all diligence. Up to 100 talents of silver, 100 cords of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil, and salt, without prescribing how much. Whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done in full for the house of the God of heaven, lest his wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons. We also notify you that it shall not be lawful to impose tribute, custom, or toll on any one of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the doorkeepers, the temple servants, or other servants of this house of God. So here, Artaxerxes directs the local Persian officials to provide ongoing support from the provincial treasury for the project, up to a certain amount, which he establishes in verse 22. Again, the rationale for this investment is that the king is eager to secure the goodwill of all the gods associated with the regions and peoples under his rule. In verse 24, he also instructs them to exempt the Jewish clergy from imperial taxation. In verses 25 to 26, he is addressing Ezra again. He says, And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God. And those who do not know them you shall teach. Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. So here, Ezra is being told to set up a Jewish civil system inside the Persian imperial system. Much the same way that indigenous communities in North America often exercise a degree of self-governance in their territories, so here... Ezra is given the authority to set up courts and to appoint magistrates and to administer justice and enact punishments as required. Of course, the focus of these courts would be on Jewish cultural and religious law. 
there would be Persian courts and Persian laws for matters of imperial concern. Verses 27 to 28, we assume, represent the voice of Ezra himself. He is overwhelmed by the favor granted to him by the Persian king, and he attributes this ultimately to the providence and sovereignty of Almighty God. He says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king, to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors, and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage, for the hand of the Lord my God was on me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Now, many biblical scholars identify this story as marking something of a transition in the biblical storyline. For much of the Old Testament, Israel was both a church and a state. But here, for the first time, they are a church within a state. They have the law of Moses, and they have the law of Persia, and it isn't always clear how those realities interact and overlap. Where is the line between the obligations we owe to God and the obligations we owe to the king? The word biblical commentary is helpful here. It says, Neither for Jew nor for Christians has it ever proved a simple matter to know just where such boundaries should be drawn. Nevertheless, there can be no doubt that a big step was taken in Ezra's time toward the realization of a situation in which the distinction could be observed, at least in principle. Only against such a background could the radical message of Jesus, with its call to be a citizen of God's kingdom, not of this world, though paradoxically with attendant responsibilities toward the outcast and downtrodden of society, have ever been received, close quote. In more ways than one, the story of Ezra gets us closer to the story of Jesus. The changes being experienced and celebrated here better position us to receive and obey the Great Commission given to us to go and make disciples of all nations, all of whom henceforth will have to wrestle with these fine distinctions until the second coming of Jesus Christ and the final consummation of his kingdom. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support 
for the end of the word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 